This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Joshua Lucy, a physician assistant in primary care at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Depression is a common condition that we see in our practices. It is a multifactorial disease that can affect patients of all ages. In today's talk, we will focus specifically on women in depression, as women are twice as likely as men to receive this diagnosis. We will explore how this condition is diagnosed, how depression subtypes can manifest, what effects hormones have on a woman's mental health, and how we can help treat this condition for our patients through various parts of their life. Today, we're joined by Neetha Jane, a Mayo Clinic board-certified psychiatrist from our Arizona campus. Neetha serves as a third-year clerkship director for Mayo Clinic Medical School students in Arizona, and she also works closely with primary care providers as an integrative behavioral psychiatrist. Thank you for joining us today, Neetha. Thank you, Josh. Happy to be here. So, Neetha, let's talk about depression, and do you mind defining this for us? You know, what really is depression, and can we define this chemically? Depression is often thought to be really a result of a chemical imbalance. However, this figure of speech does not capture the complexity of the disease. Research suggests that depression does not simply result from too much or too little brain chemicals. Rather, depression is believed to be a multifactorial, meaning there is an interplay between biological factors such as neurochemical hormones and pathways, genetic vulnerability of having a family history, and whether there are stressful life events that are ongoing in that person's life. So psychosocial factors affect women disproportionately who are more likely to experience abuse and places them at greater risk for depression. So the short answer is there's no single cause for depression. So if I'm hearing you correct, Neetha, you can have depression with having a proper balance of your hormones and your neurochemistry. It can be more than that. Yes, it can. So a lot of times epigenetics in terms of you could have the genes and depending upon what's happening in your environment, those genes could be expressed. So we're all individually very different and hormones for women, we manifest them differently. And it's getting to that biopsychosocial model of, of this disease, huh? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Anita, how is the best way you diagnose this in your office? Is this something that you're able to do from just one visit or is this something you need several visits to diagnose? Depression is a clinical diagnosis that's based on clinical history and also observing the presentation of the individual. So whether they look dejected, sad, whether they're tearful. And in psychiatry, we use the Diagnostic Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders for basically defining depression. So it can be diagnosed within one visit. And what I look at is really trying to get a longitudinal history, trying to really tease out whether they've noticed changes in mood or less interest or pleasure. Has that been nearly every single day for two consecutive weeks? And if they have one or two of those symptoms, then really using the mnemonic that we learned in medical school, Ziggy Caps, is so important. Because as individuals, we have fluctuations in our mood on a daily basis, we can feel down, we can feel sad, we can feel blah, you know, for brief periods of times, depending upon what's happening in our lives. So this is the part that's really confusing for a lot of people. It's like, well, you know, what is clinical depression? What is, how does that differ from just having a bad day? 
to really summarize, it really has to be at least two consecutive weeks, nearly every day of having changes in sleep, changes in your appetite, noticing your energy level, your motivation's very low, kind of feeling slow, your movement's a little bit slow, or they could be a little bit more agitated, kind of restless. Some people endure suicidal thoughts. These can also occur. And also feelings of feeling kind of like you're letting your family down, letting yourself down. Thank you for that, Nisa. And, you know, sometimes I believe in practices, they'll even give some patients a questionnaire to complete the PHQ-9. And, you know, part of me likes this questionnaire and part of me doesn't. It almost takes the humanity out of medicine, you know. Is this something that you're using in your practice regularly or, or not too much? Well, absolutely. We use it on every single visit. So the reason being is we in psychiatry, we don't have a blood test. We don't have a blood pressure monitor to assess for hypertension. We don't have hemoglobin A1C for assessing someone's diabetes to provide us that continuous data. So we really rely on validated rating scales to quantify the severity of depression. So PHQ-9 or the patient health questionnaire is really something that's easily accessible. It's a self-monitored nine questions that really assess that are the same questions that make the diagnosis for major depressive disorder. So how we quantify that in terms of using that rating scale is so important. So when we see someone for the first time, if their PHQ-9 score is like 15, what that tells me is their severity of depression is severe. So from zero to four is no depressive symptoms. Five to nine means you have mild symptoms. 10 to 15 is moderate and greater than 15 is severe. So with each visit, I can make the assessment like using you know, hemoglobin A1C or checking for blood pressure. So when you get to the diagnostic part for giving the patient a depressive code, are you using your PHQ-9 mostly to quantify the severity of their diagnosis, or does that also come from your visit? So I am using the PHQ-9 to quantify the severity. Okay. And do you think that this is something anyone can do in terms of like a family practitioner? Can they diagnose depression as mild, moderate to severe, or do you think this is a psychiatry-only thing? It's really important for primary care providers to actually be administrating these scales because you are the gateway for patients. And despite our best efforts to really destigmatize mental disorders, there continues to be a perception by society and by individuals that mental health means you're crazy. Depression means you have a weakness. And a lot of times I have patients coming to me saying, I just want to let you know, I'm not crazy. It is so important for primary care providers to really administer this because patients have trust in you also because you know them. So they feel very comfortable really bringing up their concerns. They trust you to administer medication and using these systematic scales, you can make the assessment whether their symptoms are getting better or, or worse. And so measuring outcomes is so important. And Nitha, so we get in that visit, we make the diagnosis, we can quantify the severity. 
how often are you now going to give this patient a subtype to their depression? You know, there's some subtypes out there for MDD or major depressive disorder. Is this something that you use commonly in your own practice? And is this something that you think more of us should be using? So I do use subtypes and I do do it on my first visit. And with subsequent visits, oftentimes more information is shared. Sometimes people don't know their family history. Sometimes they really don't know certain things and then go back to their loved ones and get more information. So saying unipolar depression or saying mild depression, depression with anxious mood, all these different subtypes I do do use and I modify them depending upon what's happening with each visit. So those can be flexible from visit to visit, it sounds. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if someone has depression and there's that subtype with anxious distress, how do you tease out, is this depression or is this anxiety that the patient is dealing with? So that's really difficult to tease out. Oftentimes depression and anxiety are bedfellows in the sense that you can have someone who has anxious tendencies. So whether they're ruminating and worrying about different things, this can really spill over to more of a major depressive episode where it's starting to affect their sleep, it's starting to affect their daily life. So I often ask patients, tell me, when did you start noticing feeling depressed? Have you always been a worrier? Can you give me examples of things that make you anxious and that worry you? So sometimes it can be situational. Other times it can be something where they remember when they were much younger being anxious about going to school. So it's about exploring, but it is still difficult to figure out in one visit, whether it's depression versus anxiety, but oftentimes they do coexist. And Nitha, how important is it for at least primary care providers to make a diagnosis with a subtype? Does that impact outcomes at all? Does that impact patient care at all? It depends upon the comfort level of that primary care provider and also time. We're all been really busy. I think if primary care providers do do that, I think they will have a better idea in terms of how severe the actual condition is for that patient. Nitha, thank you. So, you know, after we make this diagnosis, we hear this a lot from our female patients that they just say, I think my hormones are off. And sometimes we even take birth control pills and they'll say, you know, this birth control pill is affecting my hormones. This big emphasis on hormones in our talk today about women and depression, can hormones ever be the sole cause of a woman's depression? I know that's that interplay, but is there ever just mm. that such an imbalance in hormones that it could do that? So female sex hormones are considered to play a key role in the onset and development of depression. So as you mentioned earlier, that what we know is from birth until puberty, the rates of depression between boys and girls is pretty much equivalent. The prevalent rate with the onset of puberty for women and girls tends to double. So the doubling rates are thought to be hormonal effects with changes and fluctuations with estrogen levels, progesterone affecting serotonin. Serotonin tends to be our feel-good chemical. So not all women experience PMS, PMDD. What happens is what we're learning is some women have a sensitivity to these fluctuating levels of hormones, whereas others do not. 
is that something that you could tease out from a family history, you think? Like if that woman's mother or grandmother had a history of PMDD or PMS, is she more likely to experience the same? So that's an, one important risk factor of really knowing their family history of whether prior history of depression, prior history of PMS, PMDD, and other women in their family. But I think also what's really important is their own personal history in terms of really knowing their experience of menstruation from the onset of puberty as they age through perimenopause, you know, menopause, and how that affects them. And the critical period is also really pregnancy, how things have been for them in pregnancy, how the postpartum period was for them. So all these things are really so important for a woman to have the knowledge and awareness of her own body. So when they say to you, my hormones are off, that could be a factor. Something to take into consideration for sure. You know, defining these hormones a bit more, sex hormones being that FSH and LH, follicle stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. Do these hormones have any direct impact on serotonin or is it more so that estrogen? luteinizing hormone and FSH, the follicle stimulating hormone, really promote ovulation and stimulate the ovaries to produce estrogen and progesterone. So those fluctuations in menstruation in terms of the surge of estrogen or progesterone, actually with the onset of menstruation, both estrogen and progesterone levels are low. So it's really these shifts for some women that really produce mood symptoms. And Nisa, is this ever a time to check these hormones, but you know, in terms of a lab test? So a lot of patients will ask for that. They do. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of defer them back to their primary care provider. (laughs) Now, I think they're seeking some kind of reassurance because they probably feel people are not hearing them or not really believing them. At some point, many of them have had those levels checked. And unfortunately, we don't have the nitty gritty to really say this is a cause for that to present back to these women. So just taking that whole biopsychosocial model into account, kind of getting back to that a little bit. Yes. And I think that's so important. A lot of times it's easier to target one validated lab as opposed to really delving into what's going on in their lives work stressors, relationship stressors, financial stressors, all these things are so impacting. And now getting to the treatment side of things, some of these female patients are not inclined to want to use birth control options because it can affect their hormones and they're afraid of that affecting their mentation. And the woman who wants to treat things naturally, Mm. what are some great natural treatments for depression outside of cognitive behavioral therapy? Do you have any Mm. go-tos from there? I really emphasize engaging in healthy behaviors to help move depression along, such as regular exercise, which releases natural endorphins, a healthy diet. I tell patients our Western diet of overprocessed foods, fast foods, tends to be really increased cortisol levels, which puts you at greater risk for anxiety and depression. So really sharing with them the importance of Mediterranean diet, which has lower content of overprocessed food, regular practice of meditation, mindfulness, yoga, and breathing techniques really activate the parasympathetic or calming nervous system. 
So one of the things that I really share with patients is it's about really engaging in a lifestyle that you can take forward and you can use every single day. And I think it's also important to emphasize that you don't need to happen overnight. It can be a very gradual process of just trying to make little incremental changes in their behaviors. And then hopefully, you know, it becomes more of a routine. And Nitha, you're in the sunshiny state of Arizona. (laughs) I'm up here in Minnesota. So a lot of our patients love to take vitamin D. Is there any science behind taking supplemental vitamin D to help mood? Or what would you say on that? Yes, I think being in sunny Arizona (laughs) is really um, mood elevating. I grew up in Buffalo, so I (laughs) know exactly where you guys are coming from. When you meet a woman for the first time, I think it's really important to do a systematic workup to rule out any organic causes such as low vitamin D, such as hypothyroidism or elevated TSH checking vitamin B12 levels. So if their vitamin D level is low, I do suggest that they supplement that. But if it's normal, then I don't really go to as an augmentation strategy with that. So um, when we first meet someone and we're suspicious of there being an organic cause, would you say your go-to labs would perhaps be vitamin D, B12, and a thyroid test? And also CBC. Yeah, because I want to, especially with menstruation, Some women have heavy flows and they may be anemic. So you really want to assess for that. I also like to get a full metabolic panel, particularly in the pandemic, all of us have been affected in one way or another. And sometimes, you know, using alcohol is a very socially accepted thing. So checking LFTs, making sure everything's okay. So these are things that are important to just kind of assess. Nitha, for treatment for pharmaceuticals, do you have a go-to medicine that you like to tend to use for depression? I know everyone's different and assuming your patient didn't try anything yet, what's your normal starting medicine? Do you have a a favorite? I wish I could say I had a typical go-to medication when I choose an antidepressant medication. My choice based on the side effect profile of that antidepressant medication. So for instance, if a woman is just telling me that I'm sleeping 12 hours, I really don't have any energy, and my appetite is out of control. I want to avoid medications that are gonna be sedating, such as paroxetine or Paxil or mirtazapine, Remeron. Rather, what I tend to do is choose medications that tend to be a little bit more activating or energizing, such as bupropion or Welbutrin. And what I wanted to share is Dr. Mark Williams at Mayo Clinic Rochester has developed a depression decision aid guide where anyone can go to Google and access this. And what it does is it really shows the profile of these antidepressant medications. So ones that are more activating, ones that are more sedating ones that tend to cause weight gain. So this way you can really tailor your choice of prescribing medication based on counteracting the symptoms that have been distressing for that person. So primary care providers shouldn't feel pressured to stick to the first line options of an SSRI or SNRI. If they feel that Wellbutrin is the best fit for this patient, they can start with that? Absolutely. And Absolutely. 
why would some be more sedating than others? And why would some be more, why are those differences? SSRI stand for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. SNRIs are serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. So they have norepinephrine and dopamine. Bupropion, uh, well, butrin has primarily dopamine and norepinephrine and less so serotonin. So with those ideas, so they're different in terms of chemicals that they reuptake in your body. So that's where the difference comes in. And Nitha, for our female patients for safety data in terms of an actively pregnant or breastfeeding woman, mm-hmm. do you have any other options that you would give to these patients if Zoloft has not worked for them in the past or doesn't work now? You know, mm-hmm. what options do we have? Again, I want to sound like a broken record, but there's no right choice. Okay. Uh, but you're absolutely right that we have uh, the data in terms of Zoloft for pregnancy and lactation is robust. But what I ask if they've had previous exposure to something that's worked, then I would go to that. I tend to use the other SSRIs that are available. So whether it's uh, Lexapro or Esotalopram, there's been a reevaluation of paroxetine in terms of research that does not support the cardiovascular malformation that it was thought to. So a lot of times if they did do well on paroxetine in the past, it's something that if they're reluctant after the first trimester, after the cardiac formation has occurred, then it's an option. And for breastfeeding, actually there's all psychotropic medications and antidepressant medications are excreted in breast milk. We know that. And again, coordination with the pediatrician is really important. I usually tend to stick more so with the SSRIs and some SNRIs if they've had a positive response, because the bottom line is we want stability and in the mother's mental health, which is single most important consideration for both the mother and the child. Agreed. And how often, Nitha, are you reaching for atypical augmentation strategies, such as white light therapy for perhaps seasonal affective disorder? Mm. And also want to know, are you using levothyroxine even for augmentation for depression? When I lived in the Northeast, without a doubt, light therapy is very effective for seasonal affective disorder. So sitting in front of 10,000 lux, about two feet away for nearly 30 minutes from the fall to the spring, you know, has shown efficacy. Here, it's less likely for me to prescribe that here. And also in terms of liothyronine or T3 is considered an augmentation strategy, not a single first line treatment for depression. So It's not something that I've gone to as much, but what I have done is augmenting with different classes of antidepressant medications. So for example, if someone's on an SSRI, then augmenting with like bupropion or Welbutrin or using some other agents such as Buspar can also help as well. And Nisa, when should we perhaps even just have a consideration for, uh, you know, TMS therapy or even Mm. ECT therapy? What's your indication for something like that? Those are really important things to always keep in the back of your mind. TMS or transmagnetic stimulation is really effective for treatment of resistant depression. So meaning that when 
a woman has failed two trials of adequate doses of antidepressant medications, that is something to consider. However, there are limitations for that. The limitations being whether it's covered by insurances and also the time because for TMS, which is a magnetic coil that someone actually sits in an office five days during the week for about 30 minutes for about four to six weeks is so difficult. If they have the ability to do that, it's definitely an option. And electric convulsive therapy, which is different than TMS because in TMS, the person is conscious. Whereas in ECT, you have to actually be under anesthesia in order to induce the seizure. And with ECT, I think there's a lot of stigma attached to it. People don't want to have shock therapy. It's harder to actually go to that, even though for pregnancy, it's thought to be very safe. Um, so Nitha, just to wrap up our talk here, you know, you mentioned the concept of a treatment failure. You know, when would you consider a medicine to be a treatment failure for a patient? And is this dose dependent? When I start a patient on a medication, I usually tell them it'll take at least four to six weeks. And what I tell them is usually within the first week to expect side effects because they're already reluctant to begin something. And I think if you educate women and let them know that these are possibilities that are self-remitting within, you know, seven to 10 days, and then by two to four weeks, you should notice something. If there is a response in that time, then I bump up the dose. If there's no response at all within that time period, the research shows that you can actually switch to another agent. So Nitha, when would you consider augmenting with a medicine? Would you ever do that really early on in that two to four week period when they should notice something from the medicine you initially started? So I try to avoid polypharmacy at the onset. So I will really titrate the dose if they're responding to it. And if they notice at some point that it, you know, stops working or don't feel the same effect, that's when I start augmenting at that point. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much, Nita. So that was, that's really good insight. And it's definitely going to be helpful for our primary care providers here to help better treat our female patients. And with that, we've been talking about women in depression with Nita Jane, a board certified psychiatrist from Mayo Clinic. Thank you so much for your time, Nitha. This talk was, you know, very insightful. And, you know, especially during this pandemic, you know, I've been saying I feel as though we're also in a mental health pandemic. Thank you so much, Nitha. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for the invitation. It was my pleasure. If you have enjoyed this episode, please follow us on your favorite podcasting app or visit us online at ce.mayo.edu. Until next time, this is Josh Lucy for the Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, where we bring you the best clinical practice tips and trends from our exam room to yours. Have a good day, everybody. Mm-hmm.